1 Samuel chapter 15, please. 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you would. I really can't believe anybody came back tonight when you knew I was going to preach on our sin. Um, I say ours because uh, I really do. This isn't just saying it so you think I'm humble, but I do feel like the chief of sinners sometimes. I mess up just too much. And I uh, repeat the same things too often. And uh, so I, I do feel as though God's really used some of this in, in my life. He's used it in my life as a Christian, as a leader, um, as a husband, as a father, a witness, um, spiritual leader for sure. God's spoken to my heart um, about this. I want to remind you uh, what J.C. Ryle said. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy but not just. A God who is all love but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for none. Such a God is an idol of your own and he is not the God of the Bible. Any preacher in their own mind would rather preach, in their right mind would rather preach on the God who is a God of mercy. The God who is a God of love, and they would love to preach on the topic of heaven. Only a, a vindictive, self-centered, arrogant messenger of God enjoys preaching on hell, on the way that God demands holiness, on God's judgment and wrath, and the fact that he's a just God. But I want you to, to hear me that... A church that is true to the word, a pastor or a preacher that is true to the word will preach both sides of God without apology. And a people that understand the character of God, like you do, will accept and welcome both sides of God in your life. I... Uh, I don't know, I, I, I just, I, I would never apologize for preaching on sin. I think we just need to do it intentionally sometimes. But there are times when, you know, it's just, it's hard. It, it's difficult um, to do that because you, you just, you want to balance authority and love and boldness and charity and those kind of things. And, and so we're trusting that God would help us do that again tonight. Um, I put on Facebook this afternoon a picture of President Bill Clinton, a picture, well, a makeup picture of Saul <coughs> grabbing onto the, uh, the, the edge of Samuel's garment, which we'll read about tonight. And I asked this question, what might you and I have in common with President Bill Clinton and King Saul? <coughs> You're probably thinking, I don't want to have anything in common. <laughs> with either one, especially after hearing that message this morning and, and uh, all of that. But, but let me tell you a little bit about President Bill Clinton. Put that picture up there. I hope if you just got sick to your stomach, it will pass soon. If I had to subtitle this message, of course it's the second part of defeating sin, I would, I would title it this by way of a question, what kind of sorry are you? 
1998, the United States of America was shocked to hear that their 42nd president, who was 49 years of age, had an affair that lasted about two years with his 22-year-old White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. You probably remember that. The story broke in the mainstream press on January the 21st of 98 in the Washington Post. What's very interesting is to watch the stages or to read about the stages of Clinton's response once confronted with this news. Now, I was too young at the time to really care anything about politics, so I didn't really follow it. I had to research it, but some of you will be well acquainted with how he handled this. First, while standing beside his wife on January the 26th, he spoke at the White House press conference and he issued a forceful denial in which he said this, I quote, Now, I have to go back to work on my State of the Union speech. And I worked on it until pretty late last night. But I want to say one thing to the American people, and I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relationship relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. On July 28, 1998, after Lewinsky received transactional immunity in exchange for a grand jury testimony, on top of donating a blue dress that had Clinton's DNA on it, the evidence was so obvious that Clinton was forced to admit his affair. And on August 17th, he admitted to engaging in an improper physical relationship with Lewinsky. That evening, if you remember, he gave a national televised statement. And he used words and phrases like this, While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer extra information. What I did was inappropriate. It was a lapse in judgment. I know I gave a false impression and I misled people. I deeply regret that, and then he moved on to give excuses for why he, quote, misled, not lied to, misled the American people. First excuse was his own personal embarrassment. Second was to protect the reputation of his family. Third, he implied he was unfairly questioned because these questions were being asked in the midst of a politically inspired lawsuit. And then he started to take the spotlight off of his sin and place it on the sins of the private investigators that are, quote, trying to destroy my political career and family. He pleaded for privacy and for people to quit prying into his private life and let him get on with what he deems important national matters. He ended up saying this, I quote, It is time, it is past time to move on. We've got real problems to solve. You say, why are you bringing that up? Well, I'm not bringing it up with any political agenda in mind. If, if it was a Republican that did it, I would have brought it up. I'm not bringing this up to pour salt into the wound of another man's sin. I'm bringing this up, please hear me, because it has everything to do with our message tonight. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to examine President Clinton's response to his sin and to make the judgment that he was not the right kind of sorry. It's shocking how similar Saul's response to his sin was to President Clinton's response to his sin. This morning we learned that 
though God gave Saul another chance by his grace to obey, by giving him a clear command to utterly destroy the Amalekites, King Saul chose rather to only obey partially, and he kept King Agag and the best of the livestock. For that purpose, God rejected Saul as the king once and for all. We learn that the first step to defeating our sin and the only way to fully obey God is to completely and utterly destroy our sin, to take no prisoners. Now we get to the point in our text where it's time for Samuel the prophet to confront the king Saul about his sin and give him the news about God rejecting him as king once and for all. And what we're going to see in this text tonight is that King Saul was sorry. But he wasn't the right kind of sorry. According to 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, here are the two types of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Paul says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Paul was clear that godly sorrow results in repentance and transformation while worldly sorrow results in death. And that couldn't be truer than in our text tonight. I believe that it's clear that King Saul exhibited worldly sorrow. I'm going to show you that in the message. And here's what we're going to learn. The right kind of sorry is a result of the right kind of sorrow. Please hear that overarching truth of this passage That the right kind of sorry is the result of the right kind of sorrow. It's not that King Saul wasn't sorry. The problem was that he was the wrong kind of sorry. And that was a direct result of, of the wrong kind of sorrow. Now here's what I want this text to do. I want it to serve as a mirror in our life tonight. As we consider five indicators of worldly sorrow in the life of Saul. See if there are any in you. Here's the first, denying the reality of your sin instead of accepting the reality of your sin. Look at verse number 12. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. So when Samuel went to meet Saul, someone had told him that Well, Saul already left. He set him up a ranch over in Carmel. He's gone about. He's passed on. He's gone down to Gilgal by now. Do you get the picture? The picture is that Saul has went on with life. Pridefully ignoring the reality of his sin. Enjoying the spoils of the war. The the spoils that he should have utterly destroyed. He was stroking his own ego, no doubt, for retaining King Agag, something that no other general in history has been able to do. It's as though he has no real awareness that he messed up in the first place. He's just going on with life, going out and about and passing on and going forward. His denials were revealed even more in verse 13. Look at it. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Can you picture this scene? Oh, hey, Sam. Brother Sam, I've been praying for you. You've been on my heart lately. And hey, let's just take a moment. Let's just clear off a space and praise the Lord together. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
You want to sing it with me? Come on. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, and I know you didn't ask, but um, you know it just feels so good, fam, to perform the commandments of the Lord. You know what I mean? I mean, you know what I mean, preacher. It feels so good to be right with God. Seriously, Saul? Did you really do what God told you to do? Now, you talk about living in a false reality. Saul knew full, full and well that complete obedience to God was not a true reality in his life. But that was uncomfortable and that was inconvenient to admit. So he deceived his own conscience over a course of time and he chose to live in a false reality. No, it's like people that come to church and they shake hands and they have a smile on their face and they appear to be in their Sunday best and they say amen in the preaching and they give in the offering and they serve in the various ministries and they sing in the choir. Hey, they sing a special. They play an offertory. They teach a class. They perform the commandments of the Lord yet know full and well that complete obedience is not a true reality in their life. But many Christians with the deceived conscience like to live in a false reality of their own making. Samuel would have none of it. Look at verse 14. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel says, Hey, buddy, um, I don't want to be Captain Obvious here or anything, but the evidence I can hear. In other words, Saul, you're not fooling anybody but yourself. You see, people that live in denial over their sin overlook even the most obvious proofs. Matthew Henry put it this way, it is no new thing for the plausible profession of hypocrites to be contradicted and disapproved by the most plain and undeniable evidence. Many boast of their obedience to the command of God, but what mean their indulgence of their flesh, their love of the world, and their neglect for holy duties, watch, which witness against them? In other words, you can live in a false reality all you want, but your life tells on you. Your choices tell on you. The direction of your life, it tells on you. Your attitude, it tells on you. And what you think you're covering up, other people can clearly see. I was reading about a TV show. It's, a, it's kind of a reality TV show in a way, and the point of the show is to expose the most disgusting things that people encounter every day in America. In this particular episode, the reporter visited different hotels with a black light in his hand. He would go room to room, he would turn off the room lights and then turn his black light on, and the purple glow would illuminate the, the, the man, all kinds of manners of germs and and, and stains in the room. And let me just say, this is the surest way I know for a husband to ruin all future romantic getaways. Because I don't think the hotels we stay in are as clean as we think they are. Well, the reporter found a couple in the lobby of the hotel, and he said, hey, could, could, could I perform this blacklight experiment in your room? And sadly, the couple agreed. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into, but they walked into the room, and, and surprisingly, the room was spotless. It was pristine. I mean, it's as though the, the maids had just left. The bed was made. There wasn't a speck of dust. The, the toilet, the bathtub, the sink, they were shining. They were glistening. The, the floor was vacuumed. It, it appeared to be great. 
And then he went over and he turned the lights off and he turned his black light on. And unbelievably, this room, um, though clean and regular light, was actually more filthy than any other room that he had done in the hotel up to this point. There's a large stain on the carpet. There were spots all over the walls, the desk, the bathroom. Everywhere was exposed to be filthy. And then what was funny is that the lady in the room, whose room it was, she began to scream. And what she screamed was interesting. She screamed it three times. Turn that light off. Turn that light off. Turn that light off. And then she ran to the light switch and she turned on the lights in the room and she like sighed, a a sigh of relief. And she said this, now that's better. Was it really better? No, the stains were still there. The couple could no longer see them, but that didn't change the reality of the stains' existence. The word for this is denial. Hear me. Denial is turning off the black light in effort to make the stains of our life disappear. That's what King Saul was doing, and that's the first indicator of worldly sorrow. Here's the second, shifting blame for your sin instead of taking responsibility for your sin. Verse 15, and Saul said, can you read out loud that first word please? And Saul said, he didn't say I. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God and the rest we. He He took credit for the positive. We have utterly destroyed once Saul was brought back to the reality of his sin, his first inclination at that point was to blame somebody else. This is approaches as old as time. I'm talking the first man and woman of the earth had the same inclination. They were put in the Garden of Eden, dressed with amazing trees that produced amazing tasting fruit. And God said, there's only one tree that you can't eat of. Don't touch it, but have all the rest. And Satan came along and did what he does best, and he lied to him. And the way he lied to him was pretty crafty. He said, God's holding out on you. Because Satan, all, he, he can get us uh, to, to, to settle for something less than what we have he, when he targets our discontentment. And then on top of that, he said, hey, listen, God's holding out on you because because he doesn't want you to be like him. You you should be able to be your own gods, your own individuals, with your own rules. And Eve was the first one to take of the forbidden fruit. And then she said, Adam, it tastes good. Have a bite. And Adam had a bite. And God confronted them. And God said, Adam, did you eat of the forbidden tree? And you know what Adam said? Yes, Lord, it was my fault. I take full blame. I'm a guilty, rotten, wicked, nasty sinner. No. He said, it was the woman's fault. No, better yet, God, it's actually your fault because you gave her to me. Well, what about Eve? Well, God went and asked her. And she didn't point fingers back to Adam. She pointed the serpent and said it was that guy's fault. Do you understand that this is hardwired in us? This inclination to be blame shifters. And we say things like this. I know it was wrong to lose my temper, but oh, my kids. I know it was wrong to scream at my husband, but oh, he's so passive. 
I know it's wrong for me to look at that, but my wife, she doesn't even try anymore. No, I know it's wrong to rob God of his tithes and his offerings, but these bills. And then it comes out in our apologies, doesn't it? Well, I know it's my fault, but, but if you hadn't, Hey, hey, I'm sorry, but but you should be sorry too. Hey, I know I messed up, but let's quit talking about me. It's really I messed up because of something you said. How about we just try saying this? I have sinned. And nothing else. I've sinned. I've messed up. King Saul denied the reality of his sin. He shifted the blame for his sin. Here's a third indicator. Minimizing your sin instead of realizing the seriousness of your sin. Look at verse number 16. Follow the flow of the text. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, I would love to just park and preach this verse. Wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the city. Uh, the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And watch Saul's answer. He said unto Sam, Yeah, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've gone the way which the Lord sent me. And okay, I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, but I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Now, now watch this. He's saying, Samuel, I've obeyed the Lord. Take a chill pill. Okay, so I've spared one lone king, but I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. And we do the same thing as we tend to overlook the negative, put all the stress and emphasis on the positive in efforts to minimize our partial obedience. We do it by saying different things like this. I was just having fun. I mean, come on. There's a book. Check this out. Entitled Over the Edge, Death in Grand Canyon. Not a real uplifting read. But the author chronicles the nearly 700 deaths that have taken place at the Grand Canyon since the 1870s. And it's actually not surprising to me if you've been there. uh, That place is like death waiting to happen. It's, it's crazy. That's not surprising to me that people die there. It's surprising to me how so many people have died there. A number of people have fallen to their deaths simply because they were joking around. In fact, in, in 1992, a 38-year-old father was teasing his teenage daughter and pretended to lose his balance and fall. I mean, literally one second he was laughing, and then suddenly the fake fall became very real. And right in front of his teenage daughter, trying to play a joke, he stumbled a bit, a bit too far. He fell 400 feet to his death. Years later, in 2012, an 18-year-old girl was hiking the North Rim with her friends. Thought it'd be fun to have her picture taken next to the edge where there was a sign that clearly read, Stay away. So as she inched closer and closer and her giggles got louder and louder and she was having so much fun, she stepped on a pile of rocks that gave way beneath her and she fell 1,500 feet to her death. Well, I was having a good time. You might have had a good time in your sin, but that doesn't make it any less serious. Even fun sin destroys lives. 
We say this, well, things will get better. I understand I'm going through a rough patch. I've made a few bad decisions, but things will get better over time. I wonder if that's what Pharaoh told himself after the, each of the first nine plagues. Moses came to him and said, let my people go. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, so God turned their water into blood. They couldn't even get hydration out of the rivers anymore. They had to go dig ditches to get clean water. And I'm thinking he probably thought, it'll get better. This ain't too bad. I mean, we're, we're still okay. And then all of a sudden, there are frogs everywhere. And maybe Pharaoh's thinking, it's kind of loud and inconvenient, but they'll eventually go away. And then there's flies. You ever try to eat at the park with flies around? Well, there's, there's millions of flies, and he probably thought, well, it's a little bit irritating, but it'll get better. Then there's lice. Are you kidding me? I mean, Pharaoh's probably thinking it's a little itchy, but it'll get better with some shampoo and some time and some scrubbing. I'm having some fun, but... I wonder if there's anyone here who keeps telling themselves it'll get better. But the reality is, the truth is, is that things really couldn't be any worse. We say this, it's not that big of a deal. And that's what I said about my backyard four years ago. When the water bill was too high and I decided not to water it for a particular summer and I began to see the grass die and weeds come up. And I told my wife, you ask her, I said, it's, it's not that big a deal. We'll recover it next summer. And next summer, I didn't want to pay the water bill again, so I just watered the front yard. I'm one of those that has a really nice front yard and an embarrassing-looking backyard. And I said, it's, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. And if you walked into my backyard, Brother Kevin Kessler and Caden helped me put up my fence, they know what it looks like. I don't have picnics back there. There's not, there's not an ounce of grass. A blade of good grass in my backyard. It's literally overtaken in weeds. And the same is true with our sin. We tend to minimize the agags in our life because after all, it's just one thing. It's just a season. We'll, we'll, we'll make up for it in a little bit. And the longer we neglect it, watch, the larger it grows. And something small becomes something big and we're forced to finally realize its seriousness and oftentimes it's just too late. Our life's overgrown with sin. When the Holy Spirit whispered to us, you should have watered your life. You should have read the word. And we just keep minimizing. Worldly sorrow is indicated by denying the reality of your sin, shifting the blame for your sin, minimizing the seriousness of your sin. Here's the fourth indicator. Justifying your sin instead of owning your sin. Look at verse 21. Paul's explaining himself, or Saul's explaining himself. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, watch this, he says, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. I'm imagining he got kind of a preacher's voice. A spiritual voice. Did you see the spiritual spin he put on his justification? To justify our behavior means that we're condoning our behavior. It means that we have an acceptable or a viable excuse for what we did. And here's, was, here, here's what Paul's justification was. Here's his argument. Watch. The end justifies the means. 
It's called pragmatism. Virtually, he's saying, come on, Samuel, don't you know what we did, we did for God? I mean, if minimizing is not going to get me out of this, and denying the reality of this is not going to get me out of this, and blame shifting is not going to get me out of this, then I better put a spiritual spin on this. And, and, and Samuel, don't you know that sacrificing to God, hey, that's a noble goal. Instead of owning up to his sin, he actually justifies it by trying to act spiritual about it. I think we do the same thing. When Samuel confronts us about our sin, we say things like, well, listen, God knows my heart. God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he prophesied, your heart is deceitful. And my heart's desperately wicked. And we can't know it. Oh, well, listen, my desire is pure. My, my goals, they're, they're noble. And people will try to justify their sin by adding some kind of spiritual endeavor to it. Oh, listen, I, I know that drunkenness is there. And I know there are all sorts of impurities there. But hey, the end justifies the means. I'm there to be salt. I'm there to be light. And I'm going to show them that I can still be their friend and be around their sin all at the same time. Oh, I know putting all these marks on my body, I know it's worldly and fleshly, but Brother Tyler, listen, they're Greek words for forgiveness and love. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Oh, I know we probably should have been at church, but we're just taking some rest because after all, we don't want to burn out. Oh, I know I'm probably a little aggressive with my kids, but I just don't want them to end up like a bunch of hoodlums. I know I scream at them. I know I'm probably a little impatient. But listen, they're not going to be in jail one day. I'll tell you that. Churches in America are doing this like crazy. No, I'm talking about they're justifying worldly methods. They're justifying worldly music. They're justifying worldly standards. Because after all, we're reaching people, right? It's working, right? Listen, you can soothe your conscience all day long by attaching God's name to your sin and to your worldliness and to your carnality and to your choices. But at the end of the day, listen, church, there is no viable excuse for our sin. No, I'll show you. Look at what Samuel said in verse 22. Here's Samuel's answer to him. Hath the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Look, church, Saul assumed that any sacrifice, whether prepared in obedience or whether prepared in disobedience, would be acceptable to God. And Samuel told him, no, Saul, what, what is most important to the heart of God is your total obedience. And try to covering up with some spiritual slant and trying to justify it with pragmatism is nothing short of rebellion, which when we get down to it is nothing short of idolatry and witchcraft. Worldly sorrow will lead you to deny your sin, to shift the blame for your sin, to minimize your sin, to justify your sin. Let me give you one more. Here's the last indicator, sorrowing over the consequences of your sin instead of sorrowing over your choice to sin. Look at verse 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. Well, there it is. There's the first time he mentioned sin. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, 
Because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. It's like we have a new Saul. All of a sudden he's remorseful. He seems to be exhibiting godly sorrow. There's no denial, no blame, shifting, no minimizing, no justifying. He's even calling it by its name, sin. He's attempting to worship the Lord in humility. Question, what caused the sudden change in demeanor? Well, it's one phrase we skipped in verse 23. The very last sentence of the verse. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee. From being king. Watch. Saul wasn't sorrowful until his kingdom was threatened. No, I'm going to go on and show. I'm going to prove this to you. Look at verse 26. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent, it tore. And Samuel used that as an object lesson. Oh, please listen, as a parable. And he said, the Lord hath rent, verse 28, the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then watch Saul. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. He's saying, Samuel... Go to the people, please. Run to the people. Hurry to the people. Honor me before the people. Tell them good things about me so they'll respect me and follow me. And please, let's just worship the Lord so he'll be pleased with me again. And he'll know I'm serious this time so he doesn't take away my kingdom. Do you know how I know this was still worldly sorrow? Because in verse 30, he says, I have sinned. But watch, he said, yet honor me now. It was still all about him. Watch. Saul was more concerned about losing his kingdom than sinning against his king. It's amazing how sorry we can be when we stand the chance to lose something we really love. When our kingdom is threatened. Your spouse says, that's it. I'm done. Your employer says, I can't give you any more chances. You're fired. The judge says, based on the evidence, you're guilty. Your parents say, we've had enough. Get out. And then all of a sudden, you're sorry. All of a sudden, you want to change. Hear me, if you're only sorry when your kingdom is threatened, you are only sorry about the consequences and not sorry about your choice to sin against your God. That's worldly sorrow. After President Clinton's national televised interview, which featured his apology, and that's a term I use lightly because it was flooded with denial, blame shifting, minimizing, and justifying. The evidence was so convicting convincing watch if you remember the house of representatives actually attempted to impeach president clinton they were nearly successful at taking away his kingdom it was very interesting at that point when his kingdom was threatened when he was close to losing what he loved the most he came out with one more apology this time he said this i quote 
I know that many have said that in my first apology I was not contrite enough. I don't think there is a fancy way to say that I have sinned. It's scary how close, how, it's remarkable, shocking how much his apology resembles King Saul's. The timing of it, the stages of it, the sequence. It's important to me, he said, that everyone know the sorrow I feel is genuine. He was still concerned what other people thought about him. He went on to get spiritual when he talked about being repentant and having what his Bible called a broken spirit. Was he sorry? Well, I don't know. Was he truly sorry? I don't know. But it's interesting that it took his kingdom being threatened in order to reach that point of sorrow. If you're more concerned about losing your kingdom than you are about pleasing your king, then you're not the right kind of sorry. For Saul, by the time he came to this conclusion, I have sinned, it was too late. You hearing this? It was too late. But what about you? What about me? When is it too late for us? Well, we don't know when the righteous judge will say of our life, enough is enough. But we know this truth in Proverbs 29.1. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly, that means without warning, be destroyed. And that without remedy. Can I translate that verse in the context of 1 Samuel 15? I would say it like this. Sin that is often confronted and never truly repented of will cause one to suddenly lose their kingdom and never get it back. Your kingdom could represent your testimony, your family, your wealth, your health, your career, your marriage, your children. The right kind of sorrow is a result of the right kind of sorrow. So let me ask you, do you see any of King Saul in you tonight? Is there any denial? Any shifting of blame? Any minimizing? Any justifying? Are you sorry about losing your kingdom? Or sinning against your king? Oh, Brother Tyler, I know you're just talking about big sins tonight, right? No. I'm talking about the Agags. I'm talking about that sin that you tend to hang on to when God has commanded you to utterly destroy it. And we talked, we named those today. The emotional sins, the relational sins, the social sins, the sensual sins. God help us to show godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Would you stand every head bowed and every eye